From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Taylor. Hey, I don't know whether you heard or not, but 10 Freeway in Los Angeles, it burned. How does concrete burn? I don't know. It must have been really hot. But what's crazy is they had to shut down the 10 freeway. Now, the 10 is a pretty major east-west artery just before downtown Los Angeles, and the highway closed. It was all over the social media. Yeah. Well, everybody and their brother came to fix it. Governor Gavin Newsom was here, and the mayor, Karen Bass, came, and everybody rallied the troops to fix this freeway. There was an editorial in the LA Times about how they should do this with other transportation projects, not just freeways. And I quote, Governor Newsom proclaimed a state of emergency which allowed agencies to bypass bureaucracy and permitting, access emergency funding, and offer private contractors financial incentives if they complete the work faster. How about doing that for light rail or the train or bike lanes? Right. You can do it for cars. You could do it for bikes, for the climate emergency. And like we said last week, we're just getting started with e-bikes. I can see five, 10 years in the future that the amount of e-bikes takes over the number of cars, especially in more dense areas in cities. Yeah, that would make sense. The NTSB, the National Transportation Safety Board, they were investigating this high-speed crash where somebody was on drugs and going 100 miles per hour and killed a whole family in a minivan. And while they were investigating that, they recommended that automakers install technology on all new cars that can prevent reckless speeding. And they called on the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to mandate it. This was actually introduced in 1923 in the city of Cincinnati. They had a plan to put governors on cars to keep them from speeding 100 years ago. It just is such an upside down world that we cap the speed of e-bikes and scooters. And so many cars go 115, 120 miles an hour. And that's a good 35, 40 miles over the highest speed limit allowed. Freedom. Yeah, freedom to kill. I want to thank Ted Rogers from Biking in LA. He gave us his picks for the news for the week. Right. It's a great site. Well, we have a guest. It's our favorite bike share mechanic, Anne-Marie Drolet. Anne-Marie, you've lived all over the country and you've biked all over. Yeah, I grew up in Atlanta. I've lived in Philly. I've lived in Utah. I've lived in LA. So a handful of places, all with differing climates for sure. I think we were talking last week about how this time of year is so good to ride. And I think one of the questions we wanted to ask was, what can we do for our bikes to keep them in good shape and to prepare them for winter riding, for riding in the rain or the wet or the snow or the sleet or the salt? When I was living in Philly, I learned a lot about taking care of your bike throughout the winter. And I think one of the biggest things is just cleaning your bike after you use it and re-lubing components. So if you don't lube anything else, just keep lube on your chain because you want to prevent rust from happening, especially when there's salt on the roads. When it's getting all over your bike and eating away at your bike, you don't want to keep that stuff on there. I just wipe it down, make sure you get all that salt and grime off. You want to make sure some of that grime doesn't get into the gears or the hubs or the bottom bracket. Yeah, exactly. And if that stuff does get in there, it's good to just do an overhaul of your hub and your headset, even your bottom bracket. 
midwinter or after the winter's over, depending on how much you ride your bike, because those things will build up and your bike will tell you. How often do you think we should repack our hubs or our bottom bracket or headset? I would say usually once a year. That's usually enough. I rode my bike all year long when I was in Philly and I definitely sustained some damage. I could have taken way better care of it. So if you're riding a ton every single day throughout the winter, you could consider doing it again. But generally, I'd say once a year. And another thing is replacing your brake pads. I usually had rim brakes. So anytime it rained, those would just disappear so quickly. So you really have to keep an eye on those. And keeping your bike inside is a really good idea. I actually had my U-lock freeze to my frame once when I kept it outside and it crushed the down tube. I later had someone beg me to stop riding that bike because the frame was obviously very compromised. Yeah. So. Well, thanks for those tips, Emery. And do you want to plug a ride? So one ride that I help lead is called the gender expansive ride, meaning gender expressions that go beyond the gender binary. So beyond cis male and cis woman, and also for people who are of historically marginalized gender expressions, including trans and gender non-conforming folks and cis women. So people who historically have been and are often still gatekept from the space of cycling. And we see that especially now with all the bills targeting trans people in any space and especially in athletic spaces. It's great having a space just for people to feel comfortable and to be able to build community and build confidence in their cycling skills if they're not feeling that in the general cycling community because it's often very cis male, usually white dominated. That's the public facing image that you see in cycling. So I want to have more spaces that go beyond that. We usually start in downtown LA. We'll ride 15 or 20 miles. We usually stop for food. Maybe we'll stop at a park. We usually go at a chill pace. We're not trying to race. And it's just a way to build community and get people out riding bikes who may not feel comfortable riding bikes otherwise, or right. may not feel like they have a space in the community. Are cisgendered people welcome at this ride? The only people who are not allowed are cis men, which can seem like another form of discrimination. But weirdly, it helps cultivate community better when you have these separate spaces so that people can feel comfortable and can make connections when otherwise they may not feel that sense of comfort or that sense of safety in spaces that are meant for everyone. So just because a ride says that they're welcoming to everyone, that doesn't mean that they've done the intentional work to make everyone feel seen and feel heard and feel welcome, if that makes sense. We have an Instagram, the gender expansive ride. Thank you for coming on, Emery. Next time we'll have another question for you. Great. Thanks for having me. So Taylor, you did this interview coming up right now. You want to tell us about it? I came across an interview the other day that was counter to so many things that I believe. And I wanted to speak with the writer, a guy named Stephen Greenhut. And so I asked Joe Linton, the editor of Streets Blog LA, to join me. And the two of us talked with Stephen a little while about some of his ideas and why he thinks bikes are not the answer. So here's that interview. So often on the show, we get stuck into kind of an echo chamber of everybody talking about all the things that we already agree with and we're preaching to the choir. Well, the other day I was reading an article in the Orange County Press and I came across an article that said, sorry, urbanists, bicycles will never save the planet. 
I have two guests today. The first one is Stephen Greenhut, who was the author of the article. And Stephen is a columnist for the Southern California News Group, and he's the Western Director for the R Street Institute. And he's also the director of the Free City Center, and he's based outside Sacramento. My other guest is Joe Linton. He's a longtime bicycle advocate and the editor of Streets Blog LA. Joe and Stephen, welcome to Bike Talk. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us. Stephen, you wrote the article, Urbanists, I'm sorry, but bicycles will never save the planet. I wonder why you think that. Well, most people are not going to take bicycles as their main form of transportation. I live out in a rural area. I'm probably 12 miles from a grocery store. And people are still very car reliant. And the thing is, most people are happy being car reliant. Now, maybe for a little background... I got into these Twitter or X debates with some of these folks over some of my urbanism articles, and that's what prompted this, because I thought some of the responses were kind of a little strangely zealous, and in my view, work against some of the goals that I share with urbanists and YIMBY. So in case your listeners think I'm some sort of NIMBY who wants to stop urban development, it's not the case. I have a long record. If anyone looks at my column archives, I supported SB 9 and 10 quite strongly so. Those are the new state laws that allow by-right development of duplexes and single-family neighborhoods and mid-rises along transit corridors. I supported SB 423, which takes some of those by-right approval processes into the coastal zone. Now, keep in mind, I write largely for a coastal audience. The Orange County Register is the main newspaper I work for, so that hasn't been a highly loved position. So that's some background. Okay, so you're not that terrible guy. Well, I don't know. I may be a terrible guy, and I could probably introduce you to some people who think I am. But just for perspective, I'm not a NIMBY. I've been fighting that battle and support these things and have nothing against bicycle lanes and alternative forms of transportation. At the Free City Center, we promote market-oriented ideas that improve cities. I love cities. And I've lived in cities. I've lived in suburbs. I live in an exurban kind of rural area now. I believe that different people want different things at different times in their lives and that the market ought to be allowed to provide those things and bicycling's fine. Alternatives to automobiles are fine. But getting into these discussions online, which I know that's always kind of a dangerous thing, it seems like a lot of the urbanist community, a lot of the YIMBY community, and a lot of the bicycle, I don't know what I would call them, the hardcore bicyclists, People call it the bike lobby. People who don't like bikes call it the bike lobby. (laughs) Well, you know, I try to be fair in how I describe. Well, maybe in this column, I call them zealots. So maybe I wasn't. You do. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So anyway, but I am talking about a specific group of the folks I was arguing on. So just for example, I usually tweet my column out and I get what, four or five hundred views, right? When I did this one on bicycles, it's pushing 42,000 views. So people are really enthusiastic about it. And what I found was a lot of the folks in the urbanist, Yimby, bicycle, whatever community, they're not happy enough just living in urban areas, allowing higher density buildings to be built and using their bicycles. They want us all to do the same thing. And they insist on it. In fact, the one guy I quoted, he was arguing that I should take the family grocery shopping on a bicycle. I'm like, dude, if that's what you want to do, I got nothing against it. 
But that would take me all morning to get two bags of groceries. So I know that's maybe not reflective of everybody, but there are a lot of folks who call for eliminating car lanes. But once some of these people get into rebuilding our entire communities to suit their preferences, that's where I start having a problem. We'll let you know where an entire community gets rebuilt (laughs) someday, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, Joe, before I bring you in, I think you and I might agree that Stephen is a guy who probably should be on our side, the way he's talking about being a DMB rather than a NIMBY. So maybe you can jump in now and tell him why he's wrong and where he's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've been attacked by YIMBYs and NIMBYs, so I don't know that I would wear either of those. But Taylor, the section you pointed me to that I sort of prepped for for this call And Stephen, this is the second to last paragraph. You talk about the subsidies. It says, bike enthusiasts often complain about car subsidies, but don't tell the full story. Drivers pay gas taxes slash user fees, but other forms of general taxation subsidize roads. Nevertheless, subsidies are 1.5 cents per passenger mile for automobiles compared to almost 90 cents per mile for transit. And then the last two sentences are, Bicyclists pay nothing. They are the ultimate free riders. I just want to say the quick rebuttal to that is bicyclists ride on city streets and city streets are funded by property taxes. I live in LA and it's a lot of sales taxes and property taxes. And the gas taxes and user fees has been a source for transportation expenditures, but has always been subsidized by general taxation revenue streams at the federal, at the state, and very much at the local level. So bicyclists pay property taxes, bicyclists pay sales taxes, and do almost no damage to roads. So saying bicyclists pay nothing, I think is misleading. A lot of transportation dollars are paid by Well, I'm really not against funding bike lanes. I am against road diets, which reduce the number of road lanes to increase safety by basically ensnarling traffic in a crawl. I do have problems with a lot of the bicyclists that I argued with on X who aren't happy with the new bike lanes. They want totally separated bike lanes. They want barriers and they say that paint is not infrastructure and they continue to ride on the sidewalks which I think ought to be for pedestrians. And then the response is, well, maybe the bike lanes aren't safe enough. And I'm fine with safe bike lanes. I'm totally in favor of bike lanes. I think it's a good idea. Well, let me address that quickly, because you just said that painted bike lanes were enough. And then you say that safe bike lanes, that you're for that. And what we've been finding out through interviews on Bike Talk and research and studies is that we're building bike lanes for 1% to 2% of the population. A painted bike stripe is not really a safe place for a non-serious, confident, physically fit person to ride a bike. If you want to get children and our elderly population on bikes and you want to get people going to the grocery store and people taking their kids to school on bike, you have to build a separate area for them to bike so that they not only feel safe, but so that they are safe. And have you done any studies on what that would cost to get the kind of bike infrastructure that you're demanding? Well, it's certainly much less than widening the 405 or certainly much less than widening the big arterial street in your city. Bike lanes sometimes do need to take away parking and subsidized free parking for cars. 
we have to take away that sometimes to put in I'm, a bike lane. I'm sure as a market guy, you're not into free parking, right? Well, I'm actually for everything paying its own way. And I understand your point about free parking. I guess this is one of my frustrations in dealing with some of the EMBs and some of the bike advocates is they're against subsidies except when they're for it, right? So a lot of the new urbanist projects, and again, I'm all for allowing things. They're almost all subsidized and transit is heavily subsidized. In Steve's ideal market world, we would come up with a system where everyone pays their own way. Now, of course, opponents of automobiles, they like to bring up all sorts of externalities. I think a lot of those externalities are bogus. Their goal is to discourage driving. My feeling in general is that we have to accept how society is designed right now, allow it to evolve, and not try to mock people for living in the suburbs. And I don't understand why there's even a goal of trying to get families to bicycle to the grocery store. As Taylor said, a lot of bicyclists, probably most bicyclists drive cars too. It seems like spending half your day on some sort of grocery shopping expedition on a bicycle. Well, let me jump yeah. in on that, Stephen, because you're not being yeah. fair there. Very few people live 11 miles from a grocery store. I live a mile and a half from a grocery store and haven't driven to Trader Joe's in five years, I bet. And I go shopping two or three times a week because of that. And that way we are constantly buying fresh food that doesn't go to waste. And I'm able to go to the store comfortably easily. And I think I should get a discount when I go to the store because I don't require Trader Joe's to have an underground parking lot that costs them a good deal of money. I go grocery shopping maybe every two weeks. I hate going shopping. We are actually planning to move closer in now that my kids are all grown up. And I'll be, I don't know, a couple miles from a major grocery store, walking distance to one, actually. And I might walk to one, but I usually stock up. But I'm not going to go on a bicycle, even if I live a couple miles. Whatever. People should do what suits them. But people have to be safe to do what suits them. And if you live a mile and a half from the grocery store, I'm sure many of my neighbors do drive to the grocery store. And I think that's because they don't feel safe walking or biking to the grocery store. Well, I live out in kind of a rural area and I'm on a two-lane commercial road and there is no place for a bicycle. That's clearly dangerous. A recent time that I took my bicycle, somebody actually threw an apple at me while I was riding my bike down the road. I've never felt so scared in my life. And I ride a motorcycle. That's my main form of transportation. And I've never felt anywhere nearly as unsafe on my four-cylinder Kawasaki as I had on my bike. But I'm not sure I understand the problem with paint is not infrastructure. I don't see what the problem is on having a separate lane for a bicycle. That seems like it's a good thing, right? What exactly do you want? Concrete barriers? Joe, you want to jump in on that? Yeah, I think there's a debate in the bicyclist community. And Taylor's right. If you want 8 to 80 facilities, 8-year-olds to 80-year-olds on their bikes, you're going to want something protected or totally separate from cars. I do think that a painted bike lane is a good thing. It makes bicyclists a little bit safer, makes drivers a little bit more aware of cyclists. It's not the end goal in my mind, but it is a plus. I bike a lot with my 10-year-old, and I'd much rather bike on a painted bike lane than without a painted bike lane. So it's a debate in the bike community as far as what we need right away, what we need ultimately, what's valuable, what's not. And yeah, there are definitely voices out there saying pain is crap. And I can see where they're coming from, but I think paint is a step in the right direction. 
Especially if the painted lane is right by a parking lane, because when there's a parking lane on your right and a driving lane on your left, you are susceptible to what they call the door zone. And in fact, in Hollywood, just two weeks ago, a 51-year-old confident bike rider was killed while riding in a painted bike lane that the government had put there. A door was opened, knocked him into the lane of traffic, and a car coming from behind him hit him and, and killed him. So I don't think we're going to get many non-confident bike riders to ride in those kinds of lanes. And if we want to change our society in a more positive manner, meaning meet some of our climate goals, meaning lower congestion, meaning clean our air, meaning make our population healthier, we have to make an environment where more people can ride bikes, not just the fit and the brave. Well, most people I know don't have any interest in riding a bicycle as a transportation device. You know the wrong people. Well, they seem like <laughs> nice people to me. And I have no interest in riding a bicycle as a transportation device. Even if we triple the number of bicyclists, it would make no dent in our climate goals. Well, I'd be careful there. I mean, I'm worried about climate. At this point, for L.A. County, according to the county's own study, tailpipe emissions account for just under 50% of greenhouse gases. And I mean, this is like YIMBYs and NIMBYs. It's easy to shoot something down and say bicycles all by themselves won't solve everything or ADUs won't solve housing. Yeah, that's true. But I think we need to be looking at these broad crises like housing and climate that our cities have big impacts on and say, yeah, we're not going to kick everyone out of the suburbs, but we need to look at what are those steps that we can take that aren't going to be so traumatic to populations that are going to be steps in the right direction that are going to create virtuous cycles. And I think tripling the number of bicyclists would be an awesome step in the right direction and would make our cities, like Taylor said, healthier, better for climate, better in a lot of ways. Is it going to solve climate? No, it's not. But is it one of 200 steps that we need to take to solving climate? I think so. And if it doesn't work, the alternative is my daughter growing up in a world that she doesn't get to take the climate for granted like I've gotten to and that things are dangerous and inhospitable and unhealthy. Nothing's going to solve the whole problem. There's a great well, quote that says the bicycle will not solve any one problem by itself, but it is a part of solving many problems. And I think that kind of goes in with what you're saying, Joe. Bikes are fine. I'm kind of a laissez-faire, as I've pointed out before. If you want a bicycle, go ahead and bicycle. The suburban areas near me, the lanes always seem to be empty. And I don't think the design of the neighborhoods are conducive to that as a regular transportation device. I found that a lot of the bicyclists that I interacted with, they don't even like electric vehicles, which don't have tailpipe emissions. They want us to bicycle for some reason. And I just don't think it's realistic. It's what half a percent of American commuters use bicycles. And we're all here in California, which has really lovely weather, even up here in the Sacramento area. So you can bicycle pretty much all year round. And yet I see the same philosophy in places like Minneapolis. I used to live in the Midwest. I lived in Des Moines and there's this push to bicycling. My God, have you ever spent a winter in the Midwest? And I have these folks respond to me and say, well, just put on a big winter coat. I'm like, you know what? Most of us are not going to put on our big winter coat when it's five degrees out and bicycle somewhere. And the automobile... Yeah, again, Stephen, I think you're going to the extreme in the argument. It's so funny that you bring up bicycling in Minneapolis. I just had a guy on the show 
Soren Jensen, who was talking about a segregated bike path in Minneapolis and that it is often plowed before the roads are because it's so easy to plow and used all year round. Now, you make a good point. The majority of the population is not going to bike in the wintertime, but some people do. And I think zealots like maybe myself and Joe and some other people. You're nice zealots, Joe. Yeah, nice zealots. (laughs) Don't necessarily want to make everybody else bike. We want it to be safe for whoever wants to bike, to bike. That's, I think, where the crux of what we're talking about is. Because right now, the bike stripe and the way many of our roads are set up, it's not safe. First of all, bike lanes are often empty because there's never a traffic jam in a bike lane. People just go right on through it. But also, we're building many of those bike lanes for only 1% or 2% of the population. And so we need to think about how can we social engineer our society to allow more people to use other forms of transportation because continuing on this path of driving everywhere, spending a gallon of gas to buy a gallon of milk is unsustainable. That's probably where we have a fundamental difference. And I bristle at the term social engineer. I'm perfectly fine with the term civil engineering. I was using your words on purpose. Yeah. Oh, I know. But I'm always putting civil engineering. So if we're talking about building lanes so that people who use them ride bicycles, fine. But we're dealing in a world of scarce resources. It always is. And if we have the vast majority of people getting around by automobiles, how much do we spend on a tiny percentage who use bicycles as a main transportation device. And of course, the number of bicyclists, from what I read, has been pretty stable since the 80s in terms of the commuter data. I don't know recreational data. Again, I would argue that by saying we're building an infrastructure for only a very small percentage of the population. So as long as we keep either not building an infrastructure or only putting in bike stripes, we're only going to get six or seven or eight percent of the population biking at the most. We've got to reconfigure the roads to allow more people to have the freedom of choice. Yeah. If I can jump in, I would also say that if you don't like social engineering, we probably shouldn't be subsidizing with general funds things like driving. We as a society have spent hundreds of billions of dollars on making it easy for people to drive and park. And so by making it cheap and easy to park and to drive, that's social engineering too. So Stephen, you've pitched a sort of libertarian free market thing. When I look at the metro budget, when I look at the city of LA budget, it's lots of general money going for one mode for drivers. And so I consider that social engineering. We're highly subsidizing something and then turning around and saying, oh, look, everyone drives. And to pay for safe places to walk would be social engineering. That sort of argument doesn't hold water. We're heavily subsidizing. We're paying people to drive and then turning around and saying, oh, wow, people are driving. Well, I've been through this argument with folks where it's true that post-World War II, it was government dictates that created our suburban style of living. But to unravel that would require a new round of social engineering. But I think on the subsidies, if you look at the highway user fees, the gas taxes, I don't know the number, what percentage of each gallon of gasoline goes to different forms of taxation. And then, yeah, there is a portion of general funds, but that's not the majority of it. I it's, would. It's about half and half, according to a website like Strong Towns. If you add up state, local, federal, it's about half right now. My focus would be on creating more enticing transit options 
So for most people, their automobile remains the most appealing choice. That's one of the things that spurred my debate because I've been talking with some Yimby people and they're against subsidies, but my sense is they're against subsidies when it goes to the things they don't want to have subsidized, but they're okay with subsidies for the things that they do want subsidized. So their goal is different than mine. My goal is for choice and their goal is for high density living. Again, I'm going to jump in on that also, because I don't think that's a fair explanation either. It's not that we only want subsidies for bikes. Cars are subsidized. And I would even argue that people don't naturally choose cars for every errand. Lots of times they would rather bike or walk, but in many cases they can't because the car has been so heavily subsidized and our roads are so heavily subsidized that it's not a freedom of choice. And I hope that after this discussion, you'll think about running an errand on a bike, maybe not from home where it's 11 miles, but where in a situation when you're in Sacramento and there's a bike share, you'll think about taking the bike share rather than moving your parked car from one free spot to another free spot. Well, I usually think about taking my motorcycles. That's my preference. It's an arguably dangerous way of getting around it based on statistics. I don't know any of us who are arguing that the whole road system ought to be changed to accommodate our personal hobby. Yeah, but motorcycles go 70 miles an hour. Oh, faster than that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so interesting discussion. And I'm for promoting choice, but I think everything has to be applied at cost-benefit analysis. And if you look, well, I hope you do that for drivers. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. We'll look at the user fees and so forth. I believe users ought to pay for their choice. It should closely as possible mirror the costs. Let me ask you quickly, where do you come down on congestion pricing for automobiles? Well, Reason Foundation has done studies on that, and it's a good concept. The problem is, if it replaces the current form of taxation is different than if it's just added on to the current form of pricing. But if you're adding tolls in addition to what we're already paying, then I wouldn't be favorably disposed to that. But you're already being subsidized by non-drivers. What if the tolls made up for the 50% that drivers are being subsidized? Sure. As long as we also change the fee structure so that transit pays its full way. Yeah. Transit riders ought to pay their full share too, right? And bicyclists, I don't know. I mean, now we're getting into a data argument that I don't have the data in front of me. <laughs> yeah, so I don't think any of us have the exact data. Yeah, to, we're just going to be go talking there, but... circles. But bicyclists should pay for their transportation. Cars should. That's the model, right? But I believe that... And maybe model... bicyclists shouldn't have to pay for freeways because we don't get to use them. In the ideal world, yeah, you pay for what you use. I think the difference we're getting into is over the share of highway user fees that pay for these things. Right now, I don't have the data. But yeah, my ideal world is people pay their own way for whatever their choices are, whether it's transit, bicycles. I want a private system, but we're an awfully long way from that. And what Taylor was pointing out, I think your goal is to create, you said it, you want a healthier society, a more walkable society. My goal is to have as much of a pay-as-you-go free society as possible. I'm not trying to engineer a particular result. I don't think the suburbs are bad. I think they're good for people who want to live in the suburbs. I think Joe and I would agree with that. And I think we would also say that drivers of cars don't nearly pay for the privilege of driving a car, that in our society, we all pay 
for the roads and the cars and the infrastructure which cars use. And again, without having the exact data, it's hard to really argue this point, but I'll take you at your word that you want everybody to pay their fair share. And I think in that world, gas tax and user fees would go up quite a bit and congestion pricing might fit into that. I don't know if it would work in LA, but they're going to start it in New York in 2024. And I guess that'll be a pretty good experiment. It's already in London and a few other cities. Now, do you guys have cars? Yes, I have two. Joe? My family of three has one car that my wife generally uses, and I'm in it two, three, four times a month. Okay. All right. Well, I'm just curious. And, you know, one of the points that some of the bicyclist people made in my online arguments, they have a good point, is cars are very expensive, even beyond the subsidy debate. They're expensive. And somebody can save an awful lot of money if they reduce the number of cars they have. So that's a reasonable cost argument. And you're right. Not everyone has the wherewithal to own and operate a car. A last thought, anybody? Joe, do you have a last thought? I guess what I go into it thinking is we're all in this together and we all pay into these systems. And to sort of single out bicyclists as freeloaders feels dismissive and unhelpful. And I think there's more commonality in us all paying for the same system. And I think we need to look at our subsidy structures and favor climate and health instead of subsidy structures that favor driving. And I think even what I hear you saying is politically, we can't upend the suburbs by doing that. So I'm curious to look at how we transition toward a sustainable place, a healthy place? What are the pricing structures and subsidy structures and stuff that move us toward that? And I can see that what we have now can't be just obliterated, but how do we transition from what we have now gradually towards something healthier? Great. Stephen, a last thought? Yeah, I mean, you two are perfectly reasonable. So my article probably would add a slightly different tone, not the point, if you were the folks I was debating with. So my final point would be, among your community, if there's less bashing suburbia, less bashing automobiles, more of a promotion of alternatives and choice, I think you'll make a lot more headway among the vast majority of Americans who live in suburban communities than getting into this kind of elitist nonsense and bashing on people's own choices. So I'll leave it there. Great. I would add when cars stop killing 45,000 people a year, we'll stop bashing on them. (laughs) All right. Well, fair enough. Anyway, and as I told you, Taylor, before we went on, I'm actually shopping for a bicycle. I'm just not going to use it for transportation, right? for exercise. Well, maybe we can help you find a good bike that you can do both with, exercise and transportation. (laughs) Stephen Greenhut, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. And Joe Linton, thanks for coming back on Bike Talk. I really appreciate both of your all's time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. That was really cool, Taylor, because Stephen, who wrote this just incredibly anti-bike editorial in the Orange County Register, which is, I guess, a conservative newspaper, he had thought of all bike advocates as zealots and had these really negative interactions. But then he ended up saying if more of the people he'd talked to were like you and Joe, he would have put things differently. So that's a win. Yeah, that's a win. I think sometimes I think it's valuable to be snarky or to be a zealot. But other times it's really valuable to have a measured approach, listen to what the other side has to say and give your argument in rebuttal. Yeah. Well, good job. And you talked to the head of a greenway in Minneapolis. That's going to be next. 
One of the great things about playing these two interviews back to back is Stephen Greenhut just said that one of the problems with cycling is that no one cycles in the wintertime. As you'll see in the interview with Soren Jensen, people in Minneapolis do. Today, we have a guest on the show, Soren Jensen, who is the executive director of the Midtown Greenway Trail in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Soren, welcome to Bike Talk. Hello, happy to be here. Hey, tell us a little bit about the Midtown Greenway Trail. Sure. The Midtown Greenway Bike Trail has been called the best urban bike trail in the nation. And it actually helped put Minneapolis on the map as one of the best cities to bike in the nation and, and one of the best in the world. And what's great about the Midtown Greenway, it is a rails to trail. So it used to have a rail road, trains running through it. In fact, one third of it still has a train on it. So it's rail with trail. But Two-thirds of it, the rail has been removed, and there's been a bike ped path put in there. It's become the most popular bikeway in Minnesota. Thousands of people use it. We think of it mostly as a commuter trail because, you know, especially pre-pandemic, it had a rush hour. You could tell uh, people were using it to get to and from work, and that's coming back now as people go back to work, but still the busiest bike trail around. And one of the great things about rails to trails like that is it's a protected bikeway, right? You're not going to see a car. It's actually in a trench, which is kind of interesting. It was built below grade. Uh, historically, the city of Minneapolis made the railroad dig this trench and put in these bridges, which are all now over 100 years old, and some of them need to be rebuilt, but they look really cool because they're kind of the iconic look of this bridge after bridge after bridge. But you go underneath and you're in this trench, which has become green with all kinds of trees and plants. And we've added to that by putting in more trees and gardens and things and others have too. But it's just a great way to get across the city. It goes east to west. It goes from one part of the city to the other. It goes from our Minneapolis chain of lakes all the way to the Mississippi River. And it really is the fastest way to get across town, especially in rush hour. You can just oh, zip along. That because there's no cars. And there's a couple of street crossings, but not very many. Mostly right. you're just cruising along, enjoying the the greenery and, and having a great old time. So that's why it's become so popular and so famous. And we actually get visitors from around the world and around the country that come and say, hey, how can we get a Midtown Greenway going? And so we tell the story of how we had the idea for it and then work to get it built and continue to advocate for it. Well, I want to hear that story, actually. How many miles is it? Sure. It's about five and a half miles long, which is about how wide the city is. The thing about it, though, is it has amazing connectivity. So there are trails that keep going all the way out west and you can keep going for miles and miles and miles. And then there's north to south bikeways. There's bikeways along the river. And then we would like it to extend to the east, but it hits the Mississippi River. And there's a railroad bridge right there that we've been looking at saying, hey, what if we could use that railroad bridge? If we could extend that over the river, it would connect Minneapolis to St. Paul and it would become one of the best bike highways in the world. And it would be amazing to be able to do that. So we've been working on that so we can chat more about that. But well, yeah, um, what's what's keeping you from crossing that bridge? Ah, uh, well, I would say a is couple it a bridge too far? So to uh, well, we're making some progress. Interestingly, there's three sections that we're proposing, and the first section's already been built. Over in St. Paul, there is a road that was rebuilt with the trail in mind that was going to be the last segment of our Greenway extension, but it's the first. And so St. Paul elected officials are very supportive, the mayor, city council, they're going to keep building towards the river. 
And so they're going to come meet us at the river. And so now we'll have a trail on the Minneapolis side and a trail on the St. Paul side. And then we've got this bridge there. So what's lacking? Certainly not public interest. This is a number one thing that people ask us about is when can we use that bridge? We've done several studies that said the bridge could be rehabbed. We've done studies that said that it would generate tens of millions of dollars of economic development, just like the Midtown Greenway has, because the Greenway has all kinds of condos and apartments and businesses that have been built along it. And so it's been an amazing success story, just in terms of economic development, to show what you can do when you build these kinds of trails that it can spur economic development and housing and density and all kinds of great things for the city. And so what's blocking it? Well, the railroad, people would say, oh, the railroad's blocking it because they're still using it. I would say that the railroad's kind of waiting for an elected official, a leader to sit down with them and start the negotiation. And so what we're lacking is really, I would say, the political will. for someone to step up. I've got a lot of elected officials who are champions and say, oh yeah, that would be great. That would be great. But at the end of the day, it comes down to Hennepin County, which is the county that owns the Greenway Trail and would be most likely to operate or own the bridge. Uh, And we just can't get Hennepin County elected officials to take a leadership role and want to sit down across the table. And so we do have a new initiative. The legislature, we've got elected officials at the House and Senate at the state level of Minnesota that are very supportive of the effort. And they passed legislation directing that the county work with another government agency called the Met Council to do a new study of the bridge. Now, we've already done the study of the bridge. We've shown that it can be rehabbed. You could put a bike ped trail up there. Does the train still use the bridge? They do. Is the bridge safe? Well, the bridge is going to need to be rehabbed. Hey, let's rehab your bridge. Keep using it. And here's the interesting thing. There's only rail on half of it. They took out rail on one side of it because they just didn't need it because the train goes in and train goes out. They don't need two tracks. So there's only one set of tracks. So the other half of the bridge could support a bike ped trail. There are examples of these kinds of bridges that have both bike ped trails, and also trains on them around the country. And so it could be done. But we just need the leadership of Hennepin County, the Hennepin County commissioners to take a lead on this. But once this new study by the Met Council and Hennepin County re-looking at the bridge is done, we're hopeful that it'll come to the same conclusion that ours did, which is, hey, this bridge can be rehabbed. And if you did it and extended it over the Mississippi River, it would generate tens of millions of dollars in economic development because there's land on the other side over kind of in the St. Paul area that is underdeveloped, that is just like the Greenway was. And instead of all this parking lots or dilapidated buildings or things that no one's going to miss, instead of that, you build condos and apartments and businesses and breweries and all kinds of wonderful things. We remain hopeful. Each year we undertake some initiative to keep it going, keep it in the public mind, The study hopefully will conclude the same thing. The bridge can be rehabbed. So then the question becomes, if that's the case, then let's do it. And hopefully using their own study, Hennepin County will be willing to sit down and negotiate with the railroad. So it remains a long-term project. And one of these days it's going to happen. And we're just keep pushing it forward and keep working on it. And if we want to get more people biking, especially people who aren't as comfortable with it, I've got little kids. I will never take them on a painted bike lane. Because they swerve. My kids swerve. And they don't know about car doors opening up. I'm trying to teach them, like, girls, I'm never going to take you on a painted bike lane if you can't stop swerving around. you got to stay in a single line and you got to watch out. It's just too much. But you get them on the greenway or you get them on a protected bike lane 
then you're going to get more people biking and more people feeling Absolutely. good. And I'm always irritated by experienced cyclists that say, hey, what's the big deal? I can get across the river. And I say, well, then you're on a painted bike lane. Well, what's the big deal? Well, think about the other people that aren't as experienced and aren't as comfortable biking because we need more people biking. And the way to do it is you create safe places to bike like the Midtown Greenway and or protected bikeways. Well, it sounds like you've been listening to our show because that's what we've been talking about the last couple episodes is that we're building bicycle infrastructure for two or three percent of the population and not really building bicycle infrastructure for a broader uh, right. section of the population to get right. more people on bikes. For everybody. We need it for everybody. Right. And it goes to the streets, too. The streets need to be built for all modes of transit. And that's an interesting thing that people don't understand is we've spent all of our history building it just for cars. And rarely are we building them for bikes. Now, Minneapolis, one of the reasons we're one of the best places to bike is that we are dedicated to building protected bikeways. I think we always vie with Portland or Seattle and San Francisco. Chicago's doing well. There's a lot of great places to bike in this right. country. But one of the things we also did is on our streets, the speed limit was lowered to 20 miles an hour, which may not seem like a lot, but there's a big difference between 30 miles an hour and 20 miles an hour. And that makes our streets safer. Oftentimes, that's a difference between life and death. Exactly. That's exactly right. And that's the default. Now, we have a ways to go. I mean, people are still getting hit and there's still injuries and things. Not every street has a protected bikeway, but we're making good progress. Well, if this is one of the best urban rail trails in the country and Minneapolis is one of the best biking cities in the country, what do you do from Thanksgiving to Easter? Well, people are still biking. People around the country are surprised to hear this, but people bike all year long here in Minneapolis because if we don't, then the biking season is really short. Now, of course, more people bike in the warmer months, but there's an awful lot of year-round commuters here. And the thing about the Midtown Greenway is it has its own plow crew and it's plowed fast. In fact, it's plowed faster than most city streets. And so... It's sometimes hard to get to the Greenway because you've got to get through unplowed city streets. But once you get to the Greenway, you kind of cruise. And so it's a popular commuter trail year round. And there's a fair number of people that commute. And really, like any Minnesotan will tell you, it's all about layers. Every season, I forget like, okay, for this temperature, how many layers do I need? And there's always a number of layers that you need. And you don't take your good bike. Everyone's got a winter bike. That's like the beater bike because it's going to get salt and sand and all kinds of stuff on it. So you put your regular commuter bike in the garage and you get out your winter commuter bike, which for me is like an old mountain bike that I put studded tires on or something like that. But yeah, people bike all year round. Right. It's not really bad weather. It's bad clothing. Yeah, it really is. I've certainly biked through some blizzards, which is kind of fun. People enjoy it. It's quiet and beautiful. In Los Angeles, we are trying to develop a urban bikeway along the river. And in Detroit, they're trying to do it along the Joe Lewis route. And so hearing about the Midtown Greenway gives me hope. And the fact that it took a long time is a little bit of a bummer. Someone on the show recently said it took Amsterdam 50 years to change from car-centric to people-centric. It's taken Paris 10 years. Well, hopefully now with things like Minneapolis, Midtown Greenway, we can do it in much quicker time. Every year, if you're adding protected bikeways and you just keep at it, you'll get there. It's not something that can be done overnight, but there's always opposition too. And there's always those that say, hey, I can't park right in front of the business that I'm trying to go to. 
these bikeways will bring you business. They will make the streets safer. It'll be safer for people to walk. And I think that at the end of the day, if you've got a good business that people want to get to, they're going to find you. And I don't think it's that they can't park exactly in front of your store. It's going to ruin your business. It shouldn't. It doesn't in most big cities. Best of luck getting across the bridge. Oh, I thank hope you. To get up to Minneapolis. I've never been there before. And come on and visit us, and we'll take you for a bike ride on the Greenway and head out to the lakes and bike around the lakes. And good luck to you. Thanks for having me on today. Absolutely, Soren Jensen. Thanks for all the work in Minneapolis, and thanks for being on Bike Talk. You bet. Thank you. Hi, this is Stacy with a bike thought. This week is COP twenty-eight when every nation on earth gets together to say they're going to do something about climate change and then they don't do a thing. This year, the COP is being held in the United Arab Emirates and we're simply shocked when it's leaked that the dude hosting it has been using it to secure more oil contracts. But what's really funny is that we are number one. We produce and consume more oil than any other nation on earth. In 2022, we produced and consumed 20 billion barrels of oil every single day. That's 7.4 trillion barrels of oil. One-fifth of all of the oil produced and consumed worldwide. And we represent just 4% of the world population. Yet we're responsible for one-fifth of all emissions. I believe that bikes can help change the world. E-bikes have already replaced four times the oil that EVs have. I hope that you will keep biking as much as possible and do all that you can to expand biking options, especially here in the U.S. This episode of Bike Talk is sponsored by the law offices of Pocras and De Los Reyes, with offices in Los Angeles and Bakersfield and serving all of Southern California. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around.